Hey everybody, I hope you've all had a great two weeks since we met last. Um, welcome back to our James study. I'm Nicole Hager and I am so excited to jump into week three with you guys. Last week we talked about chapter one of James and we walked through how what looks at first like a long list of unrelated topics is actually one fluid thought process from James. Back in that chapter, he laid out for his readers in this introduction that he wrote um, two paths that trials and sufferings can bring them through. When The first path is that when those trials are faced with faith, that they can lead to perseverance or steadfastness, maturity, and spiritual wholeness. But then the other um, alternative is that when we face trials, we might give in to temptations. Um, those trials could bring up temptations in our heart that can cause us to sin, and we can be led down an opposite path that ultimately leads to death. So that framework that he kind of set out in chapter one is kind of how we're going to be reading the rest of the letter. It's going to be through that framework. We're going to be seeing how that sets us up for everything he's going to say to us. So if you skipped chapter one, um, I highly encourage you to go back and listen to it because it's really, really important for the rest of the sessions. Um, today, though, we're going to go ahead and move on and we're going to talk about chapter two. But before we do, I want to stop and take a really quick tangent for a few minutes. You might remember back in week one that we talked about how it seems like Jesus is absent in the letter of James because James only mentions his name twice. You might have even noticed that last week's teaching was kind of similar. We really didn't seem to talk about Jesus at all. But I want you to remember what we talked about in week one, though, that just because James doesn't mention his name doesn't mean he isn't there. I want us to take a few minutes to see how heavily James's words in the first two chapters, really the whole book, but we're just going to look at a couple of examples in the first two chapters because that's kind of where we've been so far. Um, and we're going to see how his words are so heavily influenced by Jesus. A lot of commentators have noticed that James's teaching reflects the words of Jesus in so many different places in scripture, but the most significant parallels are found in the Sermon, of the Mount, Sermon on the Mount found in the book of Matthew. Uh, we didn't have time to kind of identify and go through any of these last week because there was just so much to unpack and we were already kind of going over. But I really don't want us to miss this. Um, really, whenever we read a book of the Bible, every book of the Bible should always be read as an individual book, but it should also always be read as part of scripture as a whole. And part of um, having good Bible literacy is to be able to recognize how different books of the Bible fit together, point to each other, reflect each other, um, you know, kind of come from each other. So we're going to take a second to practice looking at how the book of James fits into the bigger picture of scripture and see those connections that the book of James has um, with another book of the Bible, which is Matthew. So to do this, I'm going to flip back and forth between Matthew and James. So don't feel like you have to flip back and forth with me. It's going to be a lot of flipping, but I just want you to listen really closely to the similarities. In James chapter 1 verse 2, James told us, he said, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Now before that, back in Matthew 5.11, Jesus told us, Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Wow. It seems like James is really kind of saying the same thing that Jesus said, that it is we are blessed and it is we should find joy when we have these trials, when we have insults casted at us and we are persecuted. Now let's do another one. James chapter 1 verse 5. James says, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives to all men generously and out reproach, without reproach. Before that, back in Matthew 7, 7, Jesus said, Ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened to you. Hmm, that sounds really similar. Now, James 1, verse 9, James tells us, But let the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position. Well, back in Matthew 5, 3, Jesus tells us, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
very similar. James 1.22, James tells us, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Well, back in Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27, Jesus gave us this great example and he said, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And then later Jesus goes on to say, and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them will be like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. Wow, that sounds like pretty much the same thing that James is saying. Uh, One more, James chapter 2, verse 13. James tells us that judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Matthew 5, 7, Jesus said, Blessed are the merciful, merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Guys, I could go on and on. There are so many of these, but I think you get the point. James clearly has immersed himself in the teachings of Jesus. Almost everything that he says is echoing the words of Christ in some way. So while he's not referencing the name of Jesus very often, all of his teaching and instructions are directly influenced by Jesus's teachings and instructions. And I hope that seeing this helps you see the weight of James's words. And also, I just want you to notice and think of the amazing example that James sets for all of us. Guys, he was so changed by Jesus that his words naturally echoed the words of Christ. It might not hurt to ask ourselves, how much of what naturally pours out of our mouths flows from the teachings of Jesus? Would people hear us talking and think, wow, that sounds like something that Jesus would say, or wow, that sounds like something that Jesus taught? Well, also, what about our actions? Would people look at how we treat others and see the love of Christ in us? Which leads me to chapter two of the book of James, because when we look at the first half of the chapter, we're going to see that while James's words are reflecting the words of Jesus over and over again, his original audience was acting in a way that did not. Their actions were not reflecting Jesus. And if we're honest with ourselves, we're going to see how we often do the same thing that they did, even if it looks a little bit different for us in our context. So let's start by reading chapter two, the first half of it. We're going to start with chapter two, verses one through 13. Um, So go ahead and read along with me. Um, I'm going to be reading out of the New American Standard Version, um, but you can read out of whatever version that you would like. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes, and say, you sit here in a good place... And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. It is not, is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. All right, so let's make sure we understand what is happening here. 
We start in verses one through three, which give us a picture of a situation that was probably happening in their gatherings, in the original um, intended audience's gatherings. So James is addressing specifically that when they're gathering together and when wealthy people come into their meetings or their gatherings, they've been showing favoritism or partiality to those wealthy people. They're giving them the best seats and they're kind of sort of fawning all over them. And then in addition to this, when poor people or people who maybe look a little bit shabby come to their meetings, they're kind of treating them with contempt and making them sit at their feet or pushing them to the worst seats. How ironic is it that these believers who James is writing to, who were mostly poor and mistreated by the wealthy, were now doing the same thing as their oppressors? They had been mistreated by the wealthy, and now they're mistreating and dispensing judgment on those poorer than themselves. We see a little glimpse here of how as believers, we tend to take on the same sin patterns of the cultures we are immersed in, just like we saw in the book of Judges, if you guys did the Judges study. If you did do that Judges study, you probably remember that a lot of the Israelite sin patterns started to reflect the sin patterns of the culture that they were living among. And it feels a little bit like we're seeing that same thing here with the dispersed Christians. Of all people, they knew how it felt to be mistreated by those with more wealth and power than them. They should have been the first to show compassion and empathy to those who are even more poor than themselves, because isn't that what they would have wanted? Um, They saw firsthand this ugliness of how the rich people were treating them. So why on earth would now they be fawning all over the rich? I mean, James even kind of points this out in verse six. He says, hey, guys, isn't it the rich people who are oppressing you and dragging you into a court, into courts? Like, it makes no sense. And we're kind of seeing this picture of here. It's like you kind of know that story that we tend to like see movies about. Like there's the there's the kid who's abused and then they're trying desperately to win the favor of the one who's abusing them. And then they end up growing up to be an abuser themselves. Um, but, you know, even that example, it kind of probably feels pretty far away from a lot of us. It kind of seems like not maybe something that we've experienced. Uh, maybe we have. Um, but let's kind of bring it into a little bit, um, maybe a little closer to home. Maybe it's a little bit like that mom who's exhausted and is staring at Instagram for hours and leaves feeling beat up and shamed because she doesn't have the time to cut her kids' food into cute little shapes. She's not making all of her baby food from scratch. She doesn't have themed parties. She's barely getting by. Um, She's not following all the the cute little rules about um, how to parent your kids, but she's feeling shamed because maybe she yelled at her kid earlier that day. But then that same mom goes to the store and start silently judging the frazzled mom down the aisle whose kid's talking back to her. Um, guys, we we all do it in some area. There's some area that we have felt judged or mistreated, but then for some reason, we tend to kind of, we kind of hate what we hate in others, what we hate in ourselves maybe is kind of something I've heard said. Um, well, why do we do this? And why did James's original audience do it? Why are they showing favoritism to the people who were um, treating them so poorly? Well, there could be lots of reasons. I mean, maybe they were simply falling into the same sin patterns that they had been the victims of because, well, it's what they knew. Or maybe it was their way of trying to claim back a little bit of the power that they felt that they lacked in their current situation. Uh, Maybe it was just so ingrained in them because they let their own experience shape their view of how the world worked. Or maybe they saw the wealthy people who came to their meetings as an opportunity to climb out of their own trials if they could just get on their good side. It would help them to get out of those trials, out of that suffering, out of that poverty. Whatever their reasons, though, it could be any of these or maybe something I didn't list. Um, We know that it's clear that they're in a bad place here and James feels the need to address it. 
I want you to remember the framework that Jade laid out, James laid out in chapter one. There's two paths. Trials can lead to spiritual maturity, or they can lead us to give into temptation and to sin. So now we're in the main body of this letter, where James has been addressing and is going to continue to address specific sin issues and situations where the readers are on that second path. He's trying to help them say, hey, I showed you two paths. You're on the second path here. Let's get onto that first path again. And so we see that they're suffering persecution by the wealthy. And instead of facing that persecution with faith, staying on that first path and showing grace and loving others, even when they it was hard, um, instead they were falling into the temptation to act like the culture around them and to not love others, to love to not love their poor neighbors the way that they would love themselves. Um, they were starting to mistreat or judge others based on their level of poverty. And so James is now going to show them exactly why that's a sin and it's not something to just brush off, but they, they really need to repent of it so they can get back on that first path. Now, when we're talking about specific sin issues like this, it's important that we always try to address the sin beneath the sin. And what I mean by that is we have the external sin that we're doing, but it's always motivated by an internal heart um, attitude or our sinful heart um, struggle that we're having. So when we have an external actions that are sinful, it's not enough to just pull up our bootstraps, slap a bandaid on it, and to try to stop doing the outward sin. We have to look at our hearts and identify what inner sin is in our heart that is causing that outward sin. That's what needs to be addressed to see true outward change. And so I think that throughout the text, as we examine it, we're going to see that James is going to point us to two kind of reasons that we tend to show partiality, kind of two likely sins beneath the sins. And so as we go through, I'm going to point out when we get to each of those. And the first one we're going to get to um, pretty quickly right now is in verse four. So let's look at verse four. We're going to see the first sin beneath the sin. James says here that, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Guys, the more I look at my own sin and the more I see the sin in the world around me, the more that I'm convinced that most, if not all of our sin comes down to the fact that just like Adam and Eve, we want to be like God in some way. There's some aspect of God we're striving for, we're clinging to, we're wanting to be like God. And so with this sin that the original readers were struggling with, they were wanting to play the role of judge. James states that clearly in verse four, he says that you have become like judges with evil thoughts. And I'm not talking about a judge like in a court of law. Um, that's a good thing. That's something that I think it can be honoring to God. But what I'm talking about is judging the worth of other human beings, judging others as worthy or not worthy of love, worthy of attention, judging in the way that only God is supposed to judge. Why is only God supposed to judge this way? Well, when God judges, he does it perfectly. God judges looking at the inner heart, and he judges with complete justice, but also with full, generous grace based on the work of Jesus. Um, when we judge, we don't play the role of judge perfectly. We tend to try to play this role by looking at the wrong things. We look at outward and superficial things. We don't look at the heart like God does. We judge selfishly. We judge to make ourselves feel superior in some way. We use judgment to make ourselves feel better than others. And finally, we judge others without grace. We are in no way qualified to take the role of judge from God. Because as James says, we do it with evil thoughts. 
So the first thing we need to do when we fall into judging others or showing partiality is to repent of trying to be like God in a way that we are not created to, to trust that God's judgment is perfect and so we don't have to judge. We need to remind our hearts that God is the perfect judge. We don't have to be, which is easier said than done. So James is going to keep going to give us kind of a full picture of all this. So we're going to move on and we're going to get to verse 5 where James says, Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? And this is kind of a strange verse because when you first read it, it almost seems like God is rejecting partiality to the rich but endorsing partiality to the poor. But is that really what's happening? No, that is not at all what is happening. James is clear in the passage that all partiality is wrong. So we need to be really careful when we look at this section, not to kind of fall into the trap of thinking that James is rejecting one form of partiality, partiality to the rich, only to replace it with another, partiality to the poor. poor. That's not what he's doing. Um, We know this really kind of when we look at scripture as a whole and kind of what scripture as a whole says about wealth versus poverty. Um, A lot of us are familiar with the prosperity gospel that is so popular among televangelists and other people. And this is just the idea that um, is kind of a a gospel that is distorted. Um, It is wrong. And it's when people are told that God wants to bless them with health, wealth, and prosperity. Now, most of us know that this is not a biblical way to view the gospel or to the Bible or God or anything. Um, And if the prosperity gospel is what you have been taught, please reach out to me. I would love to grab coffee with you and talk through it because there is just a lot to process through there. Um, but so we know, we again, we know that that is not the gospel. And you might be starting to notice that whenever there is a teaching that strays very far from the gospel, there is usually a counterpart that strays in the opposite direction. So on the flip side of the prosperity gospel is the less popular, for obvious reasons, poverty gospel. The poverty gospel looks at verses like this one and says that it is more godly or more spiritual to be poor and wealth should always be rejected. Some would even go so far as to say that this verse and other verses like it mean that only poor people can be saved. Um, And this might be something that just seems like kind of irrelevant. I never really gave it much thought until we were getting ready to plant Providence Road Church. Um, you know, uh, my husband and I, uh, my husband's the pastor of the church, um, for those of you who didn't know that. And so one of the many things that Jeremy and I had to do before starting the church was we had to kind of forecast what we thought that the first three years of the church budget would look like because we didn't have a church yet. We had to raise all that money from outside sources. We had to go to everybody that we knew, um, share our vision and just say, Hey, would you want to help support us for the first three years? We had to go to a bunch of other churches and say, Hey, would you want to help get another church off the ground and support us for the first three years? Guys, I cannot tell you how weird and difficult and and like just we did not like it at all to have to decide what your own paycheck paycheck should be, especially knowing that is completely funded by other people and other churches those first few years. We had to wrestle really hard with what would be the most honoring to God and what would allow us to live comfortably so that we could fully focus on what he had called us to do. Because starting a church from scratch is super, super hard. And um, it would be very easy to say, well, we really shouldn't take that much money from people um, because that's not honoring to God. But then we set our salary so low that we're not effective in ministry because we're constantly figuring out how we're going to put food on the table. Uh, we wanted to honor the sacrifices of other families who were supporting us, but we also wanted to be able to do what God called us to do. And so it was a very tricky line to walk. But luckily, we had some really great partnerships with other church leaders um, who helped guide us in really all aspects of starting the church, including setting our salary. 
And I will never forget that one of the best advice that we heard from one of these leaders in another church was that we, they just warned us, don't fall into the trap of the poverty gospel when you're trying to figure out how to set your salary. Because if you set it too low, you're not going to be effective in ministry because now you have a whole new set of problems to deal with. It's really hard to focus on loving others when you're barely getting by yourself. I heard one pastor on like a podcast one time say something along the lines of that if you're finding your righteousness and being poor it's just another way that you're trying to like point to yourself and what you've done it's another way of kind of elevating yourself and boasting about your own accomplishes accomplishments like look at me I'm you know sacrificing so much to to live on so little um and so really it's another way of not finding our righteousness in Christ like we're not finding our righteousness through maybe the world's eyes but we're kind of doing this like backward spirituality where we think that if we reject all wealth that now we're finding righteousness because of all of our sacrifices but guys either way it's not finding it in Christ um and so also I mean even when you just ask the question what does the entirety of scripture have to say about wealth and poverty it's clear that while we're warned often of the spiritual dangers of wealth, because it can be a huge danger because it's so easy to love wealth, um, but we also see throughout scripture that there's definitely wealthy believers in the early church. Um, so we know that James isn't saying that only poor people can be saved. And it's important to know that because um, we need to we need to have sharp theology so that we know how to filter information that we receive in the world around us and have, and we have conversation with other believers. We want to make sure that our theology is on point. So I want us to be clear that James is not saying that only poor people can be saved. Um, If you look at again in that verse, notice the word only isn't there. James does not say God only chooses the poor. Remember, James is writing to an audience that is mostly poor, and he's reminding them that God has not overlooked them because of their poverty. He's pointing them back to God who looks at the heart, not at the superficial external things like wealth. And he's reminding them that God didn't overlook them because of their poverty. So why then are they overlooking others because of theirs? Um, So when we continue on in the passage and we're going to read verses six and seven, which seem to judge the rich, James is not now saying to reverse who they're showing partiality towards and judge the rich instead. He's simply pointing out their inconsistency in their specific situation, since the rich were the ones who were specifically causing much of their suffering. And then we get to verses eight and nine, where James says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. And that's kind of what brings me to the second reason that we show partiality. I kind of feel like right here is where James is kind of showing us the second sin beneath the sin. We show partiality because we love ourselves more than we love others. Look again at what James says in verses 8 and 9. James is saying that when you show partiality, you are not loving your neighbor as yourself, which implies that showing partiality is a form of loving self above others. Think again about the original audience. They were going through some difficult trials based on being out of their homeland, being poor, depending on the wealthy who are persecuting them. They were being treated poorly by the wealthy. So when two people came into their gathering and one of them is wealthy and one is poor, Which of those two people would have had the potential to help them with their current struggles? The wealthy ones. The wealthy people had the power and the ability to possibly help them out of their suffering. But the poor people had nothing to offer them in their eyes. We tend to show partiality to the people who have something to offer us. 
We are relentlessly self-serving by nature. We naturally gravitate to those who make our lives better in some way, whether it's that they make us happy or that they're comfortable to be around or they make us feel like we fit in somewhere. Um, and then at the same time, we don't, we're not consciously aware that we're doing this, but we naturally ignore those who don't benefit us in some way. Maybe we're ignoring the people who are uncomfortable to be around or who are socially awkward or who might make others think differently of us if we're around them. Or maybe it's just people who just don't fill us in some way. How different would our lives look if instead we practiced asking who here needs the love of Christ in some way and how can I love them well today? What if our focus was more outward on the needs of others and less inward on the needs and desires of ourselves? What if we reached out to those who needed a friend, even if it cost us something, even if it meant less me time or it cost us our comfort or cost us whatever else that we feel like is more important than loving our neighbor? What if we looked to God to meet our innermost needs and believed that he is enough for us, that God can fill us in ways that no other person can? Maybe then we wouldn't feel the need to show partiality as much because we wouldn't be looking for people to do what only God can do. We'd simply be free to love others without a thought about what we would get out of it because we're already getting everything we need from God. I mean, isn't that what Jesus did? We don't see Jesus in his life using people to get ahead or only loving the convenient. We see Jesus consistently going out of his way to love those the world had deemed unworthy. He is the source and the perfect model of what James calls in verse 8 the royal law, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. We can't look at this section and reduce it to just judging based on wealth. Because if we do, we might think, well, I don't really judge people based on how much money they have, so this doesn't really apply to me. Wealth and poverty are only one of many superficial things we tend to show partiality for. What about beauty? What about social awkwardness? What about political views? What about race? What about people with a harder past or maybe who have struggled with sins that make us uncomfortable? It looks very different for us today in the way that this shows up. We're not necessarily letting people come into our gathering and giving some the best seats and making others sit at our feet. That kind of is a bit of a cultural thing for the original readers. But maybe we need to look instead at who do we make an effort to welcome at church events and who gets overlooked? Who do we invite into our homes and invite into our lives? But then who remains unknown at church because they're less like us and harder to get to know? What types of people come into our church body and say, wow, I feel completely accepted, known, and loved? And then what types of people come to our church body and are here for three years but haven't formed any significant relationships here? Who's been coming regularly for months but nobody even knows their name? Do we pursue certain relationships because of how they may benefit us? Or do we pursue certain relationships in order to love others who are desperately in need of that love? Again, look at the life of Jesus. He gives attention intentionally to those who are overlooked, despised, and rejected by the world. Those are the people he seeks out. Can we truly look at ourselves and say that we do the same thing? If you think you don't show partiality, then you probably aren't being completely honest with yourself. Or maybe you're just thinking of partiality too narrowly. Take some time. Pause this podcast if you have to and ask God if and how this sin is manifesting in your life. It's really easy to compare partiality to what seems like greater sins. 
we kind of see James address this in verses 10 through 13. He's kind of saying, you know, he's kind of comparing it to things like murder and adultery. And he points out, if you commit one offense to the law, you have offended, you have committed offense against the whole law. We need to hear James's reminder that this is not just a small sin. It's not just no big deal. To, to, to do this, to show um, partiality, it goes against the very definite example of Christ. To show partiality is to be a transgressor of the law. And yet, even though it's a sin to do it, we are shown mercy for it. So we should regard others with the same grace and mercy that God has shown us. Let's ask God how he wants us to love our neighbor as ourself today. Because learning what we should and shouldn't do, learning all this information, reading this book, it, didn't, it doesn't mean anything if we don't act on our knowledge of the truth. So what we're going to do now is we're going to move on to verses, verses 14 to 26 so that we can be reminded that we're not just here to learn head knowledge, but we're here to change the way that we act. We're here to act upon that knowledge. So let's read verses 14 through 26 and be reminded of this important theme of action that runs heavily throughout James's letter. So I'm going to go ahead and start reading in verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also, also faith without works is dead. I hope you're starting to notice that of all the things that James circles back to, he circles back to this the most. Faith without works is dead. He talked about it back in his introduction at the very beginning of the book because he's kind of telling them, hey, ask for wisdom if you're not sure how to make this something that you do, if you're not walking this out, if this is just head knowledge but not heart knowledge, ask for wisdom. So he's kind of introducing that idea of kind of acting on what we know to be true. And then at the end of chapter one, as soon as that introduction section is over, he kind of brings it up again. And now this is kind of the third time in the book and it won't be the last time that he's bringing up this idea that we have to have actions that flow out of our faith. Um, he's giving several reminders of how a follower of our Christ should act throughout the book. And then all throughout the book, as he's giving these reminders, he keeps on coming back to the fact that, hey, this isn't just things that I'm teaching you to learn in your head. It's not enough for you guys to just learn it. You need to know how to actually do it. This should be changing your actions. This kind of seems to be the driving theme of his whole letter. This idea of faith without works being dead is not just one topic among any among many, but this is kind of the reminder he's continually giving for what to do with all these instructions on all these different topics. Because isn't it so much easier for us to go to church and feel really good about how much we're learning, about what it means to follow Christ, 
um, that's so much easier than it is to actually follow Christ into the hard places. How often do we judge our spiritual health by what we're learning? And how often do we judge our spiritual health by our obedience to the incredibly hard things that God calls us to do, like loving others as ourselves? How often do we attend a church service or a Bible study and feel like that means we're doing great, but then live our lives just like the world lives? We need these constant reminders to let our faith show itself in our deeds, just as the early church needed that. We need to be challenged when we leave a Bible study to have what we learned change how we live. Otherwise, what's the point? Um, I kind of I heard a pastor give this great example that has always stuck with me um, about a parent and a kid. And he kind of said, okay, what if you had a daughter and you said, hey, I need you to go clean your room. So she goes into her room and she's gone for an hour or maybe two. And then she comes out and you're like, hey, did you clean your room? And she's like, nope, but I memorized what you said. And you're like, oh, but, but you didn't you didn't clean it. And she's like, no, but I memorized it. And then I learned it in three different languages. And you're like, well, does that, does that make your room any more clean? She's like, no, but I really understand every single word that you said in that sentence. Guys, that's ridiculous because it completely misses the point of what she was supposed to do. What she learned or what she knows to be true that she's supposed to do means nothing if she doesn't actually do it because that room is still messy. Nothing got accomplished. So no wonder that James stresses over and over again that faith without works is dead. Guys, we haven't even touched the fact that verses 14 through 26 are basically a theological landmine um, because they seem to contradict Paul's teaching that we're saved by faith alone. Um, Because I feel like all this other stuff, it's so important. And I kind of talked about that quite a bit back in week one. So I'm not going to go into kind of the theological stuff all over again here, but I do highly encourage you to go back. If you skipped week one, go back and listen to that podcast because it's really, really important to have correct theology and to really understand where salvation comes from. But I am just really quickly going to touch on one important point here because it's going to help us to understand what James is really saying. I want us for a minute to compare James 2.24 with Romans 3.28. This is kind of the big rub. This is where they really seem to contradict each other. In James 2.24, James says that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. But in Romans 3.28, Paul says a person is justified by faith and not by works of the law. These seem to be completely opposite. They seem to be in direct opposition to each other. But if you look closely, there are two important distinctions that are going to help reconcile them. And it's going to help us to truly understand how to examine our own lives differently. Now, the first one is what each author means when they say works. And the second one is what each author means when they say faith. Because just because the words are the same, it doesn't mean that they're using them to mean the same thing. I want you to notice that Paul specifically says we are not saved by works of the law. From everything James has said, it is fair to assume that he is not talking about how we're supposed to have works of the law, but he's talking about works that naturally occur as a result of genuine faith. So the way that they're both speaking about works is very different. They're defining works differently. Paul says in several places throughout the New Testament that, yeah, our faith totally should produce good works. Um, So they're not disagreeing with each other here. They're just using works in a different way. Now notice that James does not say in um, in his passage here, he does not say that we're not saved by faith. What he says is that we're not saved by faith alone. Throughout the letter, he's been trying to show us two different types of faith. 
He's showing us a faith that is genuine and we know that it's genuine because it has works that come out of it. And then there is a faith that is not genuine, but that is empty with no works coming out of it. It's not real. It's empty and it's dead. So James is saying that the second faith, the one that is not genuine and not proven by works of the law or works that flow out of it, faith that's alone without any works, that is a faith that will not save you because it's not real faith. So James and Paul are using similar words or the same words, but they have these qualifiers around those words, the words faith and works. Those qualifiers show that they're talking about different things. But Paul and James are actually in complete agreement with each other on how faith and works exist together. Um, We are saved by true faith, not faith that is empty, but true faith that has work to back it up. And we know that faith is genuine and true when it changes how we live. So I really want us to ask ourselves as we leave here, do we see evidence of true faith in our own lives? When we look at ourselves, do we see a faith that points us to look outward and points us to love others as ourselves? Is our faith causing us to change whenever we learn things at church or in Bible studies? Is it changing the way we live? Is it forming and shaping us more into the image of God? Is it helping us to grow in sanctification? Or is our faith just words and head knowledge to puff ourselves up, but no heart change to go along with it? Let's pray. God, I just thank you so much that you are so clear in your word um, that faith is is all we need is faith is how we are saved faith is how we come to know you and we can have that assurance that our faith is real when we see you working in and through us lord we get to see evidence of our faith so we don't have to doubt we don't have to have questions about if we really truly are one of your children because you show us by the fruit that you produce in our lives God, I pray for all of us that we would take the time to examine our own lives and to ask the hard question, is there fruit as a result of my faith? And if not, God, I just pray that we would turn to you and that we would um, let this be the moment that that we do, that we do surrender our lives to you and that you come and change us and um, give us your spirit, Lord, and, and start showing us that you are there by what you produce in us, Lord. And God, for those of us who have been walking um, with you faithfully, Lord, and, and who um, do see evidence, but it's not always there because we are human. God, I just pray that you would show us grace and continually remind us, um, of, of how to grow and how to grow and and submitting to your Lordship and being obedient to the hard things that you call us to and not settling for head knowledge, but striving for actions that flow from that head knowledge. Lord, we love you so much. It's in your name we pray. Amen.